This episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Fair Square, your one-stop shop for vegan products online. They offer Canada-wide shipping and donate a portion of each sale to animal sanctuaries and animal rights groups like us. Check them out at fair, that's F-A-I-R hyphen square dot C-A. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Welcome to episode 74 of the Paw and Order podcast. I am your co-host, Jessica Scott-Reed, with my other co-host, Camille Lapchuk. Hi, Camille. How are you? Hey, Jess. I am hanging in there. It's been a week, and it's, it's only Tuesday, but... It's been a week. It's been a week. That's for sure. That's for sure. But good. It's good. It's just busy, and there's, you know, media stuff going on, which is kind of fun. Um Alberta is considering making rodeo its official <laughs> provincial sport. Oh my gosh, that gives us a lot of fodder, doesn't it? I just oh, it does. It's like I laugh and I cringe and then I get angry. I go through all these stages of emotion. It's just one thing after another with this place, isn't it? Indeed, it is. It's a wild ride. So yeah, that's been kind of actually taking up some of my time because the media is obviously interested in this story and calling for for comment. And I'm like, yeah. They shouldn't be making something that's potentially illegal their provincial sport. So that's our opinion. Yeah, you definitely would have a comment. I hope uh, I get a chance to throw in some comment there somewhere too. Because, uh, yeah, what a, what a silly idea. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll come back to this in the yes. news story. Don't worry, listeners. This will be not the last time you hear about rodeo today. <laughs> no, it will not or ever again, unfortunately. <laughs> um, no. I, I did something a little bit more uh, positive for the animals recently. I attended the Fur Bearers Awards Ceremony virtual award ceremony uh, last week on Friday. Uh, obviously, it had to be done online because of current cir- circumstances. I was very honored to receive the Outstanding Media Award and was also able to see all the other award winners, uh, in particular, the Lifetime Achievement Award winner from Gates Wildlife. Uh, this is the first I've heard of them, which is surprising to me because uh, pest control is, quote unquote, pest control is sorry, sort of a very um, specific area of interest for me. And I really want to do more work on this area. And what they do is really phenomenal. The amount of effort they go to to sort of come up with strategies for removing animals from homes and businesses to keep mothers and babies together and to do it also humanely without, you know, obviously any death or, or suffering. I was just really impressed. I was really great to learn about them from, from the Fur Bears ceremony. Oh, that's cool. I, I was at an event that Fur Bears hosted a number of years now uh, ago, a conference in Toronto and Gates was uh, presenting and I had the same reaction. It was just something I didn't know a ton about and just like amazing to hear how wildlife control does not have to be lethal, does not have to be damaging to anyone. We can coexist. Yeah. So good for them. Yeah, I was really impressed and, you know, with uh, with the seasons changing and these issues, you know, always coming up at different points of the year, I really hope I get a chance to write about them and what they do because uh, I know it's, it's, a, it's something we get asked a lot in sort of the vegan community and the animal advocacy community. You know, I have raccoons in my attic. What do I do without hurting them? And I think a lot more people want to know the answer to that. So I'm really looking forward to exploring that more. Oh, that's cool. And well, congratulations to you on, on your award from the Fur Bears. It's amazing. And oh, of course, it's very well deserved. Such an honor. And, and I, I know I know voted on by the here. people, which feels so nice, of course. And uh, it just really motivates me to keep going. And I'd love to do more regarding wildlife, in particular for bearing animals. So it's it's very motivating. Oh, well, it's super well deserved. And I know if Peter yeah. were here, he would he would crack a joke about how all three <laughs> podcast hosts are award winning. All of us at our awards. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. Hey, you gotta, you know, you gotta break up the days somehow. <laughs> <Yeah. these days. laughs> 
But you know what? It's actually, you know, we're into March now in less than two weeks. We're going to go through the time change, which is always like my favorite day of the year. <laughs> Just getting that extra hour of sunshine in the afternoon or the evening is amazing. Yeah, the spring one works well. The spring, one. But we're, we're very busy, right? The, the Animal Justice Academy is still going on. It's been taking off. Uh, I've been busy with that. I'm partial to last week, week five, not just because I had a module, but like because it was all about engaging the media in a variety of ways. What an inspiring week. Yeah, it was cool. There was so much great content about strategy, media strategy, how to get attention for the work you're doing. I loved your module on writing letters to the editor or op-eds for newspapers, which is one of those things that anyone can do. Yeah, like pretty much anyone can put, you know, sit down, sit in front of their computer, type out a 150 word letter and send her off. Like it's, it's a great practical tip. Yeah, very good for advocacy for sure. Yeah. And yeah, now we're into week six. And by the time this episode comes out, the Animal Justice Academy is going to be all wrapped up, which to me is just like, where did six weeks go? Yeah, that happened fast. Hey, but there's so much going on. Time flies when you're having fun, eh, Camille? Oh, does it ever? Does it ever? And I'm just like so amazed and proud of this great community that's been developed by, uh, you know, and really curated, especially by Kimberly Carroll, who's been running the Academy. She's just done a bang up job on this. Oh and my gosh, she's worked question, so hard, so hard. Hey, like the energy that woman has is really something. Yeah. Yeah. She's a, she's the Energizer Bunny, the original. So uh, the question that's on people's minds this week, and we keep getting posts about this in the Facebook group is what next? How are we going to leave our incredible community yes. that's fostered so much engagement and action? And the answer is, don't worry, we got you. We're not going anywhere. The Facebook group is going to stay open. It'll continue to be moderated. And we're talking now about ways we can keep the momentum going in the future. And it sounds like we're going to try to do semi-regular panel discussions so we can all meet again as a group, come together, share those ideas, share that knowledge, and just keep the sense of community going forward as we all try to get active for animals. What a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super excited about it. So uh, stay tuned for more on that. And a reminder, if you're listening, that if you want to support the podcast, one way that you can do that is by leaving us a review. We have over 155 star reviews right now, and we would love for you to add your voice. And this, this helps us because it helps people find the podcast. If you're looking for a podcast and trying to figure out if it's one you might want to listen to, being able to read those reviews is useful, but it also bumps the podcast up in search algorithms. So super helpful to us. And you can also support us on Patreon. You can support us now for as little as a dollar a month. Thank you to our newest supporter, Vanessa Bartley. We have new Patreon prize tiers. At the $5 level, gets you a mailed card to say thanks, as always. But now you can also get a pawn order sticker, too. At the $20 level, you get your choice between an official pawn order mug or a t-shirt, both of which I have, and they are awesome. Uh, But we also have t-shirts available for everyone now, too, at shop.animaljustice.ca. And anyone who supports us at the $10 a month level gets, or more, gets a $15% discount for our online store. Yay! Very exciting. Now, uh, exciting news today. We are actually doing a giveaway for our Patreon supporters in collaboration with our advertising partner, Fair Square. So Fairsquare, awesome company that provides vegan products and ships across Canada. And they are giving away a custom-made t-shirt to one of our Patreon supporters. So Jess, I've got the list of Patreon supporters in front of me. And I'm going to ask you, you can either pull a number out of your head between 1 and 39 or use a random number generator. And that person who falls on that lucky number is going to be our winner. Okay, I'm going to pick one random. I have a lucky number in there and it's 38. All right, drum roll, 38. Michelle Strauss. Congratulations, Yay, Michelle. Congrats, Michelle. Yay. Michelle, we'll, we'll email you to uh, give you your prize. Thanks for being a supporter. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Michelle. All right, Jess. Well, we've got some news stories today. And uh, I think the best place to start is with the expose on the weekend on CTV's mm-hmm. W5. They did a tremendous, very well-researched uh, story with new footage about Canada's shameful horse export industry. Yeah, W5 has really been doing well for us lately for the animals. Uh, I was really impressed to see them taking on this topic. I know personally, uh, as someone who's been writing about this issue since 2019, I've written a number of columns, really desperately working with um, 
Canadian Horse Defense Coalition to try and get more, uh, you know, eyes on this issue. And then Jan Arden hops on the cause and it's really taken off ever since. And so we're always very grateful for her using her platform and her voice. And now on W5, it felt like a really big moment for this issue that the story was shown to such obviously a large audience on this show uh, regarding particularly the live export of horses from Canada to Japan and what they endure over these hours and hours and hours of grueling travels crammed in these crates. You know, it's an issue we've talked about on here quite often. Um, And it was they did a really, really good job, I thought. Yeah, it was a very comprehensive piece. Uh, You know, a lot of people have been working on this for a long time. And you mentioned the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition. Just want to give them an extra special shout out for their amazing work on this. But they were interviewed. They took W5 through the feedlots where horses are, you know, first bred and then fattened up before they're trucked over to the airport and then flown to Japan. And the feedlots, Jess, I I hadn't really seen images of those before. Mm -hmm. And I found those heartbreaking. There was one horse that they were standing, you know, virtually right next to through the fence who'd fallen and... Yeah. had very difficult time getting up for over an hour that they, they stood there filming. So it's not just the export of these horses that's problematic. It's also the fact that they're kept outside in these barren feedlots without even any shelter for most of their lives. And then they're trucked to the airport and flown to Japan and some of them even die on road. So it's heartbreaking on so many levels and just so completely needless. Yeah, it, I think that was really powerful. I mean, the fact that the that the reporter just happened upon this this horse in this in this dire situation as they were filming it, it really makes you expect it to think that this is probably an issue that goes on all the time i was shocked although not surprised to find out that there was no shelter available for these animals and that they are in this barren it was so barren the the footage of these feedlots I'm hoping that it touched a lot of people. We we find that horses are sort of this gateway animal between, you know, animal lovers, non-vegan animal lovers and, and the rest of us because, you know, they're sort of considered a pet type of animal. And then to think of them being eaten and then it allows us to have conversations about, you know, even the cows that are also living on feedlots quite the same. Right. So I. I hope it got a lot of people thinking about these poor horses, this industry that's been for so long hidden from public view, it seems, and then, you know, thinking even further. Yeah. So thanks to W5 for shining a little sunlight. And we are going to link in the show notes for this episode to a parliamentary petition right now about horse transport, um, horse export in particular. And it would be great if everyone could sign that. You've got to be a Canadian to sign it. And they will send you a link to verify that, you know, your email address matches up with you. But it makes a huge difference to get that issue before Parliament and, and helps people discuss it. So great job, everyone involved. Now, the the next story, Jess, I kind of sprung this on you. It wasn't in our show notes, but I was like, oh, shoot, we have to add that in. Yes. Thankfully, it was something I'd seen a little bit about before. Um, Oh, yes. And you were... You were interviewed for it. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about it? Yeah. So it's a story about monkeys being imported into Canada from Cambodia. Now, specifically, these are uh, macaw monkeys who are used in research laboratories. Now, the story uh, indicates that, um, let me double check the number. So 2,500 non-human primates are usually imported annually from the U.S. But in 2020, we got uh, about 100 or sorry, about 1,000 monkeys from Cambodian suppliers potentially from breeders over there who've been under fire for pretty serious animal welfare concerns. Now, let me just say there's animal protection, welfare concerns, no matter where you get monkeys from Mm -hmm. and their use in experiments is highly problematic. But in Cambodia, there's been, uh, you know, research and reports for years about, um, you know, fraud and deception on the part of monkey sellers, monkeys being torn from the wild and then forced into breeding, um, very troubling conditions. Uh, Joanne MacArthur was over in, in Laos with a colleague and they filmed and photographed inside some of these monkey farms. So slightly different country, but same part of the world and found just very troubling conditions, you know, monkeys being ripped apart from each other, babies clinging to their mothers, not wanting to leave. It's heartbreaking on many levels. And uh, one of the things that really strikes me about the story is, okay, well, it's, you know, bad that we're importing these monkeys. We don't really know what they're being Mm -hmm. used for. We have no way of overseeing the details of animal use once they land in this country because we don't have any effective federal oversight of animals used in research. Mm -hmm. We don't know what experiments are being used for. Are they being used for COVID vaccine tests? Are they being used for something else? We just have no idea because of the complete lack of transparency in Canada. Yeah, a lot of Canadians, I don't think, realize that, you know, 
know, as much as we talk about uh, the Canadian Farm Animal Care Council, that very much the same system is in place for uh, research animals, that it, it's almost the same where the industry is essentially policing itself. And when it comes to animal welfare standards, you know, codes of practice and stuff, none of this is really very overseen by government, right? It's, it's, the, it's the industry protecting itself, policing itself. Yeah, the, the CCAC does inspections every three to five years. Those inspections are pre-announced. Everyone knows that folks are coming to take a peek in the laboratory. So time to clean up your act if you're getting an inspection. And uh, those inspections are also completely non-transparent. We as the public do not have access to those. If they were done by a public body, like a government agency that was tasked with inspecting those facilities, we would be able to apply through access to information mm -hmm. legislation mm -hmm. for that information. I mean, one step better in the States, the USDA does inspections of licensed research facilities. So first of all, there's a license, which we don't have here. And second of all, there are inspections, which we don't have. And third, there are uh, publicly disclosed reports on those inspections, which again, we don't have. So not to say that system is perfect in any way. It's got flaws and holes and loopholes too. And a lot of animals aren't covered, but at least it's something. We've got nothing. Wow. Yeah. More Canadians need to find out about this and, and become as enraged as we are. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. Well, we promised you that we'd get back to the stampede and, and rodeos. And here we are, Jess. Here we are. Oh, there's there's a double whammy this week, isn't there? Two great stories out of Alberta. The first one uh, about a study that was um, released about the welfare of animals at stampede, about how they feel about being in the rodeo. Uh, what did that study find, Camille? Well, it's so interesting. So Global News seems to be the only outlet that reported yeah. on this study so far, and they put a fairly positive slant on it. Uh, the researchers are quoted in saying, yeah, you know, it seems like things are pretty good for the horses. <laughs> so, they, so let's just back up and describe the methodology a little bit. Mm -hmm. They, The researchers had access to the stampede ground so that they could evaluate the behavior of horses inside chutes who were about to be tossed into the rodeo ring. And they looked at what types of behaviors they showed, if they showed like a fear response or they balked and tried to get away. And Contrary to the positive slant that the media and the researchers are trying to put on this story, it actually showed some pretty troubling things. So, yeah. um, you know, just for example, I think it was 70% of um, horses balked when they were um, in the chute. And that's just sort of an overall number. If you look at some of the specific um, events, even higher numbers of horses were you know, balking at this, at this situation. Yeah. And if you go and look at the actual study, the part that I found, like we say, the, the media perception of a presentation of it really doesn't reflect what the study itself sort of says, which in the end doesn't say a whole lot. Um, it, there's a quote uh, in the release from the University of Calgary where um, the research was done, of course, that horses with more exposure to a rodeo environment showed less signs of aversiveness uh, than those who were less experienced. I mean, that itself could be interpreted in different ways. Um, so it, the, the person that they're quoting, um, she's quick to point out that there was no way of knowing in this environment if the lack of aversiveness shown by more experienced horses is because they're habituated or just resigned, right? So, I mean, if, if, that's, if we can't find that part, then what is even the point of this entire study? Yeah. So the study, I mean, they definitely dismiss some of the more negative explanations for, you know, the horse's behaviors. Um, and, you know, like pretty much dismiss out of hand that the horses have just learned that the pain and physical discomfort they experience while trying to escape from a chute is, um, you know, less or, or more harmful than just, you know, standing there and bearing mm -hmm. it overall, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. which is a huge problem. And if you look at some of the more specific events, like the novice saddle bronc event appears to be associated with the highest prevalence of balking behavior with 90 percent of horses mm -hmm. balking and trying to get out when they're in these loading um, pens. And it also shows handlers making the highest incidence of contact with a paddle on the horse's face, hitting some parts of the horse's body and wow. swinging gates shut in a way that makes contact with the horses. So uh, just, you know, what's interesting about the study and the global news story failed to mention this. It's like, guess who funded it? Yeah, guess who funded it, Camille? Tell tell our listeners who funded this, listeners, this riveting study. Listeners, do you have study. any guesses? <laughs> 
Turns out the Calgary Stampede funded it. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So interesting that, you know, the Stampede gave them such great access and funding to do this study. And suddenly there's been a positive bent. Yeah. The, the, the interpretation of this wishy-washy data ends up saying, oh, things aren't quite so bad. And that this is actually just one of what to, what's coming. Four studies of the like. Like, I would be very interesting to find out what sort of behavior is shown to animals that are about to go to the chuck wagon races, right? Or or the cows, the, the calf's about to be roped, you know? Like, how are those animals acting before they're about to go out and have this horrible stuff happen to them? Yeah, totally. But, you know, in a sense, it's kind of interesting that the stampede is funding research that confirms what most of us viscerally already know, which is that the stampede is awful for horses and other animals and lends support to this idea that animal justice believes firmly in, which is that there are aspects of radio events that are illegal because they cause unreasonable distress or suffering to animals. Yeah, they're really they're really working hard to try and paint this welfare brush. It's it's odd and interesting and sometimes laughable. <laughs> Oftentimes laughable. Yes. Now pivoting, pivoting, pivoting to another attempt to to make the stampede slash other rodeo events appear better. And let me just backtrack for a second and say I don't have a problem with the stampede per se. It's the rodeo events at the stampede that are a problem. And I think the Stampede would do a lot better if it just did away with those events. But yes, I agree. That's my view. I mean, I, I wrote for the Global Mail last year, I believe it was. Maybe it was the year before. <laughs> this year was a bit of a blur. But saying that <laughs> there's a lot going on at the Stampede, uh, you know, that's a lot of cultural, a lot of entertainment, a lot of food, uh, and even some, you know, rodeo events that were taken virtual, you know, to be to be sort of progressed as a more, uh, you know, futuristic way of experiencing rodeo. Uh, and different and different animal formats that were that was done without without animals. I mean, there's a lot going on there that that doesn't require these these barbaric old school ways of using animals. Yeah. Now you contrast this study, which is revealing some stampede or rodeo cruelty, with uh, the other story we mentioned, which is that Alberta is <laughs> a private members' bill to make rodeo its official provincial sport. Oh, like, oh wow. my god, just my doubling down, doubling down. Doubling the heck down. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's a private bill from a Calgary UCP MLA. It is apparently going to be studied both by a committee. And uh, this is actually not the first attempt to make rodeo the provincial sport. Apparently it happened mm -hmm. in 2008, mm -hmm. um, which I don't know a ton about, but there's been an attempt underway for a while. So where to start? I mean, okay, first of all, you're talking about a bunch of sporting, quote, participants who actually don't consent to participating in yeah. this, quote, sport. I mean, it's, it's hard to call this a sport in the first place, because usually you think of a sport as a, you know, a community building thing where people don't come together and play for the sake of enjoyment and right. competition. This is just a spectacle of animal cruelty. Like it doesn't even qualify as a sport. I agree. Yeah. So, you know, if you're in Alberta, let your MLA know that this is not cool. And that you don't want to be represented by an official sport of this type. Like, surely there's enough people that would not want this to be the official sport of their province. Yeah, I mean, almost nobody takes part in rodeo events. Like, how many rodeo participants are there, like, in terms of humans? There's very few. There's a few competitors. This is not like a broad-based um, sport that other people can enjoy and participate in. Like, how about curling? Saskatchewan's provincial sport is curling. Right. Nobody gets hurt in curling. <laughs> Definitely not. Accessible to most. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That makes way more sense. Yeah. All right, well, in our final story, Buttergate. Buttergate continues. Buttergate continues. What a saga this has been. I know you and Peter spoke about sort of the early days of Buttergate, and it has really taken off. It's made international news uh, all the way to the BBC. Uh, I think The Guardian covered it, too. Uh, and now there's some change happening, right? They're actually telling farmers now that they are not supposed to be putting this, feeding this, uh, this palm oil to, to cows. Yeah. So interesting to see the evolution of the Dairy Farmers yes. of Canada response to this. At first, they're like, oh, no, we don't think this is happening. We can't confirm that this is happening. <laughs> then they're like, oh, yeah, well, but it's fine. You know, like butter or sorry, palm oil. It gives cows energy. So that's good. It's a legal, uh, it's yeah, a legal like food this. additive, right? Yeah, totally legal. We've got no problem with this. And now they're kind of like, yeah, we're asking them to stop. <laughs> to stop. <laughs> Just asking them to stop. What I have found interesting in this whole thing, I've tweeted about it. Our friend John Rush had a really popular tweet about it that, you know, Canadians, Canadian butter consumers are all up in arms that they've been, you know, maybe lied to or there's been deception from the dairy industry. And I'm like, if you guys think that this is the most deceptive thing the dairy industry is doing or like that this is the, this is where you you take an ethical stand is on palm oil, really? Let me tell you. 
There's a lot Google more. Google dairy is scary, YouTube, if you want to know more about that. Oh my gosh. So last month I wrote a, a blog for Planet Friendly News that sort of dissected some of Canadian uh, dairy farming um, propaganda, some of their um, uh, marketing materials for the last couple of years about sustainability and animal welfare. I interviewed uh, you know, our friend of the podcast, Nicholas Carter, about some of the environmental claims. Uh, and it just, you know, always talking about how they're really twisting things to show this very wholesome and now very progressive uh, farming and product. And, and it's really just the same old cruel stuff. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 trying to make a buck, and they found a better way to make a buck by feeding cows palm oil. And doesn't shock uh, me yeah. at all. <laughs> no, par for the course for the dairy industry. So I, I'm sure this is not the last of it. <laughs> we will keep you all posted. Yes, we will. Buttergate continues. Have you heard of Fair Square? They're a vegan online store that features a wide variety of Canadian-made and ethically made products. Fair Square is run by vegans for vegans and donates a portion of each sale to animal sanctuaries and animal rights groups. And you get to choose right at checkout who you want to support. So whether you're looking for vegan cheese and meat, snacks, fair trade chocolate, sustainable clothing, gift baskets, or more, Fair Square has it all in one simple shopping experience and ships Canada-wide. You can find them online at fair-square.ca, that's F-A-I-R hyphen square.ca. And as a pawn order listener, you can get 15% off your next order by using the code AJ15 at checkout. And for our main segment, I'm very excited to welcome Calvin Neufeld and Dr. Amy Fitzgerald to the podcast. They're going to be speaking with us about a new report issued by Evolve Our Prison Farms. It's called Canada's Proposed Prison Farm Program, Why It Won't Work and What Would Work Better. And they are both co-authors of this report. Calvin is a social justice advocate, a vegan trans man, and an educational speaker with a passion for human rights, animal rights, and environmental justice. In 2016, he founded Evolver Prison Farms, a coalition of activists and academics advocating the transition of Canada's prison farms from for-profit industrial animal agribusiness to non-profit plant-based therapeutic farming. Previously, Calvin worked as an editor, as a legal researcher, and as an environmental consultant for the Ontario government, building an innovation-driven bioeconomy. Calvin is also the lead organizer of Kingston VegFest. Amy Fitzgerald, PhD, is a professor of criminology in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminology at the University of Windsor, where she's also a hybrid cross-appointee with the Great Lakes Institute for Environmental Research. Her research focuses on the intersection of harms, criminal and otherwise, perpetrated against people, non-human animals, and the environment. And she's a founding member of the University of Windsor's Animal and Interpersonal Abuse Research Group. She has published several peer review articles and books and is currently working on three grant-funded projects. She's received many academic awards for her work and was most recently a visiting research fellow in the Animal Law and Policy Program at Harvard University. Welcome to the podcast, Amy and Calvin. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, it's a really, it's really a delight to have you both here to talk about what I think is a very important issue and especially one that's been gaining steam and traction lately, which of course is uh, the prison farm issue in, in Canada and specifically in Ontario. So I wonder, Calvin, if you could start off by giving us a bit of a background on, uh, you know, the use of prison farms in Canada, which particular prison farms you're concerned about and what you've been working on lately with respect to those. Well, prison farms have a long legacy in Canada dating back to the early uh, colonial days um, and it was a means of land acquisition for the state, largely uh, acquiring lands from indigenous territories and by converting them into farmland. Um, they were able to actually own the land surrounding uh, penitentiaries. So there is a bit of a, a settler colonial history behind prison farms in Canada. And then they evolved into uh, sort of the modern day format of producing food for prisons. But then under the Harper government in uh, 2010, uh, all of the prison farms in Canada were closed. At the time, there were six federally funded prison farms, uh, mostly producing milk, meat and eggs for prisons. Um, and they were shut down because they weren't making money and uh, they weren't translating into employable skills for inmates upon release. And then uh, the Trudeau government made an election promise that it would reverse that decision and bring prison farms back. And uh, what we're witnessing today is that it's not a return to the old model. Um, we at Evolve Our Prison Farms saw an opportunity to 
introduce a new model that would improve upon the old model uh, by essentially converting it into plant-based food production, healthy, nutrient-dense food production for prisons, and possibly introduce some animal therapy as an alternative to working with animals in an ag animal agriculture setting. But the Correctional Service of Canada has instead uh, decided to adopt a for-profit model using prison labor to produce goods um, for sale to the private sector and specifically industrial goat dairy operations that reportedly are expected to supply a supply chain of infant formula exports to China. So what started out as an opportunity to see something progressive and new being introduced, we're seeing something very harmful, destructive um, and new being introduced. Well, it's it's disappointing and, and also super interesting to me because I remember under the Harper government when they made that move to cancel prison farms and there was an outcry at the time and everyone said, you know, why would you do this? It's a has huge value to both the people who are incarcerated and the community. And, uh, you know, at the time I, I hadn't looked into the issue carefully and I kind of assumed they're like farming vegetables or grains or something uh, useful and then not specifically animals. So I think for a lot of people, it's really surprising to learn that the federal government is promoting essentially factory farms inside institutions where they're also, um, you know, warehousing people. So, um, you know, with that in mind, I wonder if you could, you know, speak a little bit about which particular prison farms you've been working on recently and what those actually look like. How many animals, which animals, uh, etc. Yes, of course. So specifically, the government is beginning with a pilot project at two penitentiaries in Kingston, Ontario. Kingston is kind of regarded as the penitentiary capital of Canada. It has the highest concentration of prisons of any city in Canada. Um, and that's where the majority of the opposition to prison farm closures uh, took place in Kingston. And it was led by the National Farmers Union and um, industry stakeholders, as well as uh, concerned citizens who, like many people, saw this as a move to remove programs that actually did have benefits for participating inmates. Um, so... <laughs> The government is looking at Kingston now as a pilot project for this new prison farm uh, model that's being introduced. And if it is successful, which is a big question, then uh, we could potentially see a rollout of similar models being introduced at other prison farms reopening in Canada. So this is ground zero, and we feel that it's imperative that an ethical and sustainable model be adopted from the outset. Yeah, agreed. So you two have collaborated on, on a report produced through or commissioned by Evolve Our Prison Farms, your group, Calvin. And uh, Amy, you and your uh, colleague, Amanda Wilson, who's an assistant professor at St. Paul University in, in Ottawa, with the assistance of some others, have uh, produced this report that, that looks at the issue of prison farms and uh, identifies some of the shortcomings in what's being proposed right now, but also proposes a framework for transforming them. So, Amy, I wonder if you could speak a, a little bit about what you see as uh, I understand there's sort of three main areas of shortcomings that you've identified in the report with Canada's current prison farm model. Yeah, I uh, went through the literature, went through their plans, went through all of the access to information documents that uh, that have been provided and identified a number of problems. I think my job was probably easier than Amanda's because I got to identify the problems and Amanda, who did an amazing job in part two of the report, uh, provided a framework uh, for alternative models that uh, that we think would work better. So the there are a number of problems. Uh, some of the most pressing, I think, uh, include that the rationale that has been given for these programs um, is unlikely to be actualized by their their model that they've proposed. So they've argued that having this program will facilitate work skills and um, rehabilitation, uh, reduce recidivism by extension, but there's actually no evidence to support those claims. Um, and unfortunately, I think there there's this notion that animal assisted therapy is beneficial, which it 
in the literature, it has been documented to be beneficial in some contexts. Um, but when once you delve into this, you realize this isn't animal-assisted therapy. This is a huge industrial goat farm with over 2,000 animals. 2,000 goats. Let me just pause there for a second to appreciate just how vast that number is. I mean, that's uh, that is a factory goat farm. That's not some sort of hobby farm where inmates get the chance to interact in a positive way with animals. That's a completely different creature. It is. And in fact, when I looked at the size of goat farms in the province, if CSC goes ahead with this plan, they will have the largest goat farm uh, in the province. So it's it's huge, right? Um, and one of the problems that uh, Calvin alluded to with a, a farm of this size is they're going to be competing with other farms. Um, and it will be difficult to compete with them. Uh, one of the problems is, another problem is that inmates are paid very little for their work. So they'll be paid less than a dollar an hour um, for their work on the goat farm. So they'll be compete. the CSC's goat farm will be competing with other goat farms that obviously have to pay uh, their workers more money. Um, in addition, you know, work in dairy farms, for anyone who's familiar with what it's like, you know, it's difficult work. Um, it's been categorized as being relatively high risk as far as injuries and illnesses go. Um, we know now, you know, there's been so much attention paid to zoonotic illnesses because of COVID. And um, certainly, I think there's reason to be concerned that it's possible that zoonotic illnesses could originate in this farm. Um, there's currently an investigation underway in the Netherlands, and they believe that uh, zoonotic illness on goat farms there is responsible for a dramatic increase in uh, pneumonia in the human population within a kilometer and a half radius of goat farms. Um, so that's possible, as well as spread of illnesses um, that don't originate among those animals. You're taking yeah. a, vul a vulnerable population inmate um, and then adding another vulnerable grouping to the mix, individuals who work in uh, animal agriculture and putting them together could be uh, potentially catastrophic. Yeah. And, you know, it's March 2021, we're recording this interview. And by now we're all a year into understanding exactly what conditions are right for the spread of infectious diseases. And we know that both in the prison context where inmates are housed on top of each other in close quarters with little ability to distance, and in the animal farming context where you can say pretty much the same thing, probably even more intensive for animals, those are just the ideal conditions for the spread of disease. So it seems like a huge blind spot that the Correctional Service of Canada isn't uh, interested in this, or frankly, that the Public Health Agency of Canada or anybody involved in public health side of things isn't weighing in too. And may I point out as well, um, the GOAT operation is going to be established at Joyceville Institution, where there was recently a significant COVID-19 outbreak. Um, and it's actually the intake uh, a, a center for prisons in the region. So all of the new coming inmates go to Joyceville before being assigned to another institution. So that makes it a very high risk site to also add in an intensive animal agriculture operation. The risks to the prisoners, to prison staff, and to the communities. People work in Kingston and go into the prisons, come out, and it just puts everybody at risk. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I appreciate about the report and, and frankly, the all the work that you've done on this campaign and this initiative, Calvin, is that you've highlighted uh, the importance of thinking of people who are incarcerated as individuals and uh, respecting their interests in this issue and what they might wish to see happen. And I know the report uh, quotes a number of people that you've spoken with who happen to live in these institutions and engages with their perspectives. So what have you both found that people who are incarcerated and might be you know, forced into these situations, what do they think? Well, I, I will point out that prison labor in Canada is not forced, so that's an important thing to understand, but it is a very grey area. Um, so they would sign up for work programs, but participation in work programs is um, one of the conditions to progress towards your eventual parole. So there are very few programs actually offered, and if an inmate doesn't want to work on the farm or doesn't want to work in the goat dairy, 
or doesn't want to work in the abattoir at Joyceville, and that's another topic altogether, it can impede their progress towards parole. And um, so we can talk about what prisoners' perspectives are, but um, maybe first, Amy, you might want to uh, mention the, the, the part about voluntariness and uh, the human rights issues of a plan like this. Yeah, that it's another significant issue, um, and part of the issue, part of the concern is that individuals, as, as Calvin said, that it's voluntary participation, but they're not being compensated to the degree that individuals who are free laborers are compensated for this type of work. So this sets up. CSC has gotten around this in the past because they've argued that they don't need to compensate and to provide the same work standards for inmates as individuals who are not incarcerated because um, it has a rehabilitative function. But what we argue in the report is there's actually no evidence that it's going to have a rehabilitative function. So without that component, um, it's, it can be argued, we think, that there that it constitutes human rights violations to have these individuals working in this industry, which is, as I mentioned, you know, it's been acknowledged as a is a relatively high risk industry. So it puts them at risk, and additionally, it puts the correction staff at risk for a number of, you know, it, it's not just the potential of zoonotic illnesses; it's also risks associated with manure. For instance, some you know, not something that people like to think about, but animals produce a lot of manure. When I went through and did the calculations, you know, based on the estimated size of the number of animals and you know the, the uh, estimated size of each of them multiplied by the number that they're expecting to have, I put it at over twelve thousand pounds of manure being produced each day. That's a significant amount of manure. And with manure comes bacteria, comes, you know, heavy metals, comes all of these risks that are going to have to be dealt with. Um, and if they're not dealt with properly, uh, there could be significant problems. And even if they are dealt with properly, you can't ever uh, mitigate all the risks um, w associated with manure. Mm, including the, you know, this isn't really as, as much of a direct contamination issue, but the greenhouse gas intensive cost of feeding tons and tons of grain to these animals before they're eventually slaughtered for meat and their milk is used for various products. It's obviously so much more inefficient and greenhouse gas intensive than a plant-based agriculture production system. Yeah, it definitely is. We've certainly tried to make that argument that uh, this model is not in alignment with the government's priorities about around reducing greenhouse gas emissions and meeting our Paris Accord targets. Um, and it's just sending the wrong message in, in an age where we have to address the climate crisis as, as one of the most, if not the most significant issue of our time, as Prime Minister Trudeau has labeled it. Um, and the city of Kingston uh, was one of the first municipalities to declare a climate emergency. Um, and uh, this is a federal program and a federally funded program. So to be in competition with farmers, to put vulnerable populations at risk, to uh, be bordering on human rights violations, um, it, it's just the wrong model. Um, but we find it's very hard to turn a ship this size around. Um, but with all of the evidence that has been put forward, uh, we feel that this report should certainly give the Correctional Service of Canada pause and reason to reevaluate their plans before they proceed. Well, I certainly hope so. And it seems to me that this campaign and this initiative is reaching a critical juncture. I mean, in the last number of weeks, there's a petition which has just exploded with support for, you know, converting prison farms to something more positive for animals and people who are incarcerated and the rest of the country. Uh, how many signatures is that sitting at now, Calvin? We are at over 23,000 signatures, and a great number of those came from students of the Animal Justice Academy, and we cannot thank you enough for mobilizing all of these people who care. Most people have not heard about this. Many have not heard about prison farms at all, let alone in Canada, let alone them coming back to Canada, let alone under a model like this, that the vast majority of Canadians, whether you're vegan or omnivorous, doesn't matter. Anybody can see what the problems are with this model. And it's just not something that the majority of Canadians would support. 
And it is also setting a new precedent for prison labor in Canada. Prison labor has almost always been used exclusively in Canada for internal purposes, producing food for prisons, producing textiles for use of government uniforms, police, mailboxes, furniture for government agencies, or decommissioning tanks for the military, internal government uses. This is explicitly for the private sector. And uh, we need to be very worried about the, the trajectory that that is setting in Canada. Well, and presumably, if you're somebody who's in the business of selling a product that might be produced by a prison farm, you you should be very worried about this. This is, uh, you know, something that I think people on the more economic right should be concerned about as well, instead of just, you know, the so-called bleeding hearts who care about people and animals. It really affects the free functioning of the marketplace, if that's an issue of one's concern. So, you know, another another reason for us all to be taking it seriously. On the, the legality of this as well, uh, we did have a, a legal review conducted by the Queen's Business Law Clinic. And if these prison goods are being used for the private sector, then we can make the argument that it's a human rights violation because it doesn't meet the conditions of full voluntariness. So without fear of, co- of penalty or without co- coercion um, and non-participation would mean they're going against their correctional plan. But also if the goods are exported, there are international export laws that prohibit uh, um, certain amounts of import and export of goods with prison labor in the supply chain. Um, and Canada has import laws that strictly prohibit the import of any goods that have prison labor in their supply chain. So this goes I I could give you any number of reasons why this plan is the worst possible model that could have been selected for the reopening of prison farms in Canada. But I just want to add that as well. There's many layers of uh, violation, environmental, human, animal and legal uh, transgression as well. Well, and I appreciate that section of analysis actually quite a lot. And it's great that you managed to work with some law students on it uh, because it really it does look closely at international labor standards and uh, This situation does not seem to pass muster. So Amy, part two of the report really focuses on a framework for transforming Canada's prison farms and turning them from something that, you know, its current model is an expensive uh, waste of money that harms humans and animals and reconceptualizing something that's actually beneficial to the community, including for the benefit of the people who are housed in these institutions. I wonder if you could take us through some of the alternative types of prison farm um, models that you looked at. Yes. Uh, as I mentioned, Amanda Wilson was responsible for that part of the report, and she did a, a great job. And what she did was to develop um, some significant alternatives that are plant-based, um, importantly, and areas where we I found when I was doing the research for part one of the report, there's actually significant demand for. So when I looked at the demand, what the market looks like for uh, goat dairy products, it's actually reaching a state of oversupply. So it's it's not a good business to be getting into at this point. Whereas um, horticulture, especially greenhouse-based horticulture, is an area where there's a significant labor gap and it's expected to uh, increase. So Amanda's recommendations for alternatives are better positioned to meet those demands. Um, So the individuals who go through these programs would be better positioned to get jobs once they're out of the prison, which is is really important. If you're going to put individuals into labor programs, I think we have an obligation to ensure that they're labor programs that are preparing them and are preparing them for segments of the economy where there's actually demand uh, for workers upon release. So horticulture-based programs. Um, She also talks about horticultural therapy in that section of the report and does a really nice job drawing on um, empirical evidence to demonstrate that these those types of programs really do have benefits and help prepare people for the workforce and have therapeutic benefits. Whereas working in an industrial goat dairy um, isn't, there's no empirical evidence to support that it will have any therapeutic benefits at all. Well, and in fact, I I know that you've spent quite a lot of time researching the impacts of industrial agricultural operations on the surrounding community, and you've actually uncovered evidence that uh, they have potentially negative effects, or at least there's a correlation there. Yes. uh, In some research that I did a few years back, I looked at 
employment rates in uh, animal slaughtering industries in particular, and found a connection between employment rates and uh, violent crimes in the surrounding community. And that was statistically controlling for other correlates of criminal activity, like the proportion of young men in the population, social disorganization variables, et cetera. So you're, you're right. I mean, there's not only do we think that there would not be therapeutic benefits, but we might also be doing a significant disservice um, to individuals in those programs and to the surrounding community. It's an area where we need further research um, I'm, I'm hoping the goat dairy doesn't open and provide a, a potential research site for those further studies. Uh, but we, we certainly do need research into what the potential impacts would be on, on inmates who uh, might be particularly vulnerable to, uh, to working in that type of environment. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, it would be uh, really unfortunate for that to be the testing ground for this idea. And uh you know, the other the other thing that really strikes me about the situation, I mean, two other points I wanted to explore is like, A, the cost to taxpayers. Um, I read the number and now I forget it, but I believe it was like at least $10 million still to come that federal, you know, taxpayers are funding this institution, this facility. Plus $4 million so far. $6.6 6 million so far. The federal budget in 2018 allocated $4.3 million to restore the prison farms, which they changed the wording now to implement because this isn't a restoration of prison farms. It's a new model entirely. So you got to watch the language and the nuances to it. But uh, through access to information, we did find that they plan on investing an additional $9.75 million into uh, the infrastructure for this. So far, they have already spent $6.6 million. So they've already exceeded the federal budget funds, which were supposed to be spent over a five-year period. And they haven't even broken ground on their major livestock enterprise. Uh, they have very little to show for $6.6 million. I've, I've made the joke, I've commented to people, you give me a million dollars and I'll come up with a better model uh, that has more relevance to prisoners and more benefits to the community and to the environment and I'll give you change. I think you two already have with this report. <laughs> yeah. Well, so one one other thing I really uh, well actually let me go back to my second point, which was the you know the existence of a slaughterhouse in the prison farm. It just seems so backward to me that we're you know ostensibly trying to assist people while they're incarcerated. I mean that is one of the stated objectives of incarcerating people, which some take major issue with in the first place, including me, and I assume you as well. Um, but one of the stated objections is to contribute to their rehabilitation. And given everything we know about the negative impacts of slaughter on the individuals who are coerced into performing it, it just blows my mind that they managed to shoehorn this in to um, those principles. Yeah, it's it's certainly problematic. And as Calvin said, so few people are aware that these programs exist. Um, unfortunately, Canada is not alone. There are other countries, the U.S., for instance, that employs a, a large number of inmates in industrial animal agriculture, including animal slaughtering. Uh, and it, it certainly is uh, runs counter to, you know, the one of the stated goals of rehabilitation in a prison is helping individuals uh, foster empathy and develop uh, empathy skills, right? And so industrial animal agriculture is intentionally set up to prevent one from developing, developing empathy, right? You, you're dealing with a large number of animals, they're given numbers, you don't want to develop bonds with them. Um, it's intentionally set up so that you're objectifying them uh, because if you do develop empathy for them, that becomes problematic, right? So it's certainly not the type of work that we should be uh, putting inmates into. And, you know, I, I realize some people have very little sympathy for inmates, um, but if you... If you want individuals, the vast majority of individuals in Canadian prisons will be released into the public. You want them to have the skills that they need upon release. Uh, and based on the literature, the, the best skills that they can be given are vocational skills where they're given certifications and, that help them when they're released and, and further education 
further education has huge impact on uh, on inmates upon release. It's that that is helpful. Not working in a slaughterhouse and likely not working in a, a goat factory farm. Absolutely. And I really appreciate how you emphasize in this report that you're looking at these issues with a view toward promoting a decarceral future and a system where fewer people are caged uh, and fewer animals are caged because there's obviously, you know, very serious connections there. So if people listening are interested in this issue and concerned about it, what is the best way for them to take action to assist with this campaign? Well, please do sign and share our petition. It's on change.org, Stop the Prison Industrial Goat Farm, um, and write to the Commissioner of the Correctional Service of Canada. Write to the Minister of Public Safety, under whose portfolio this whole thing falls. Write to your MP. Um, there's a list on our Take Action page at evolveourprisonfarms.ca for uh, the various decision makers that you can contact. Um, follow our campaign. Um, it's unfolding in real time. We're continuously digging up more information. Just this week, I received an access to information release on all of the records from the prison abattoir from 1995 until 2018. And it took over two years to obtain that and multiple complaints. And finally, an order from the information commissioner herself, who uh, who judged that the Correctional Service of Canada was denying access to those records. So it's been a fight to dig up every ounce of information that we're talking about today. Nobody would know about this if it weren't for an enormous amount of effort to extract the information about what's really going on here. Um, and if you have any contacts in the media at all, please do put us in touch because that's been a missing piece. The story has been kept very quiet, very intentionally, and we need people to be aware uh, so that they can do something before this thing is established, before it is too late. It's not every day that we have a real opportunity to stop a factory farm. Um, and to prevent um, the intensification of human rights abuses, of environmental destruction, and of the, the devastation uh, of animals and their lives and their bodies. It's absolutely easier to prevent something from getting set up in the first place than it is to try to unpack that after or to repack it, the toothpaste into the tube after it's already been squeezed. So I appreciate that comment. Uh, and I appreciate the work that both of you are doing on, on this issue and the awareness raising that you're doing. Uh, was there anything I missed that you wanted to tell our listeners about? Well, I you had asked about what prisoners think, and that is yes. so very important. There's just so many angles to this. It's hard to touch all of it. But I've spent the last several years going into prisons and talking to prisoners and corresponding with prisoners, and we've gathered feedback as well. Nobody wants this goat farm. And that includes prison staff that we talk to. Um, they're not allowed to speak publicly. They have to sign an agreement that they're not allowed to speak against correctional policies. Uh, but but there's really nobody who's happy about this. And a lot of prisoners are saying, you know what? We know we're going to be exploited. We know. We just want to jump through the hoops. Whatever they tell us to do, we're going to do it. They tell you to jump, you ask how high. That's how you play the game. Um, but they don't want to work for, quote, the man, um, and they love the alternatives that we are advocating here. Um, the idea of being able to contribute to building a better society. Uh, there's a perception sometimes that prisoners are just sitting around wanting to, you know, being antisocial and wanting to leech off the society and being a cost. They're, they're in their situation often as a result of their own histories of trauma um, or of racism or discrimination or being victims of crime and the effects that that have or poverty. There's many forms of violence, as Gandhi said, and poverty is one of the worst forms of violence. Over 30% of the prison population is indigenous. So these prison farms are going to rely heavily on incarcerated indigenous labor. And this has this is a, a breach of, of indigenous values and beliefs. And so once again, a contradiction of our government's priorities in areas of reconciliation. 
but prisoners are very protective of animals, whether it's a, a frog or a chipmunk or, or a squirrel or a cat, and they know what it's like to be caged. They, they, they see themselves in the animals that are being farmed, separated from their families, um, stuck in a cage, and it's just this, this dark mirror of how society sees them. But with an alternative model, they can contribute to gain meaningful experiences, um, skills that will assist them once they're released, and just have that good feeling. They're, they're starved of any purpose and any meaning while they're incarcerated. And this is an opportunity to provide meaning and purpose um, by supplying food for food banks or indigenous communities or other food insecure communities. The possibilities are endless, as outlined in our report. Um, and, you know, prisoners who worked on the former prison farms, many of them talked about how th it was interacting with the cows that was so transformative. So under the old model, they had a small number of cows and it was a dairy operation and they processed the milk on site and served it internally. But they all of the cows had names and inmates formed bonds and they worked for years at a time on those farms. Today, the average amount of time an inmate spends in a core can job is three to six months. So the factory, the, the, the factory mentality is mirrored all throughout the Correctional Service of Canada and it is becoming less and less relevant and less and less beneficial. So this new prison farm model is just a manifestation of a much larger systemic problem and so stopping it and transforming it is like we'd like to describe it it's planting a seed of change that can that can transform the system as a whole and really improve the lives of inmates and society um, and we would all benefit from a evolved prison farm model and if i can just add on to that one thing that some of the inmates had mentioned um, was how traumatic it was for them to have to separate the calves from the mothers because, you know, it, dairy is made possible through continual impregnation. And the byproduct of that is that you have to remove the babies from their mothers. It's a very difficult task. And to have inmates doing it puts them in a very difficult and traumatic position to do that. And with this goat dairy, that is going to have to be part of it. You're not going to have 2,200 goats producing dairy without having them get pregnant every year and having to remove the babies from their mothers. That's going to be hard work. Additionally, they're going to have to be what's called debutted or have their, um, you know, have the their horns cut off. Uh, that is very difficult work. Farmers don't like doing it. And so what? who's going to do it? The inmates? It, you have to burn them off. It's very difficult. The, you know, the animals scream out in pain. Um, it's a difficult work to do. And what if there's an outbreak on the farm, a scrapey outbreak, a Q fever outbreak, and these animals have to be killed, right? If there's an outbreak like that, the practice in the industry is to kill the whole herd. So then are we going to have inmates killing them? Are we going to have inmates have to, you know, take help carry them out um, as they're taken to slaughter to be killed? This potentially could be extremely traumatic uh, for the individuals involved. Yeah, those are excellent points. Like, holy cow, talk about cruel and unusual punishment, you know, forcing, I, I don't want to use the word forcing, but people are in a coercive, relatively powerless position compared to the correctional institution and asking them to carry out some unspeakable tasks that obviously cause trauma. And these are individuals, like largely people who are incarcerated have suffered trauma in their lives. They've suffered extensive trauma in many cases. So yeah, that th thank you for that because it really does underscore on so many levels, what a bad idea this is. So, yeah. You know, there was one inmate who, who the way he puts it is that we really haven't moved any farther from the early days where they just had prisoners doing awful menial tasks for the sake of punishment, work as punishment. And that included just sitting in a quarry breaking rocks. And he says, we haven't gone anywhere from those days of breaking rocks. And I said to him, well, you know what? <laughs> I would rather be breaking rocks than working that goat dairy. And he said, so would he any day. So we're going backwards monumentally. 
Absolutely. Well, we we really appreciate everything that you two and your co-authors are doing and everyone who contributed to this report. And uh, if you're listening and you want to play a role, take Calvin's advice, check out their website. We'll link to the petition. We'll link to the website and other ways for you to take action. Thank you both so much for being here and for all that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Camille. Heroes and Zeros. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, just Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. All right, our hero this episode is Greenpeace. You know, and I got to say, I've been really impressed with a lot of things I've seen from Greenpeace lately. They, they're increasingly making the connection between climate change and animal agriculture. They're really focusing on the social justice and environmental mm-hmm. racist, uh, racism aspects of environmentalism, which is cool. And now Greenpeace is doing something pretty, uh, pretty gutsy in the UK. So they are actually um, out in the uh, British Channel and they are dumping uh, large boulders into the sea in, um, I think, the sea off Brighton, it says, to stop fishing boats from trawling the seabed. And this is part of their campaign to tighten restrictions on some of the most destructive forms of fishing in protected areas of the UK water. So, you know, just allegedly the area that they're they're operating in is already protected. And apparently a number of areas are designated as protected, but still fishers are allowed to go there and basically trawl the bottom of the ocean for creatures like scallops and other types of clams. So they literally put like a large sort of like metal, um, you know, trawling device down there and like scrape the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. So the boulders are designed to prevent that from occurring because obviously if you're concerned that you might ruin your equipment on a boulder, you're probably not going to go there. Yeah, that's heroic and bold and clever. I love it. Yeah, so you know, it's really gutsy. I don't know enough about the laws in the UK to provide any opinion on whether they might face legal consequences from this, but I know Greenpeace is um, often willing to push the limits mm-hmm. of what's acceptable in the interest of protecting the planet. And I, I love that they're you know, willing to get out there and make this into a news story. And hopefully it will actually prompt government change. Apparently there's been some discussion about protecting areas to a greater extent. And um, this is the kind of headline that sometimes motivates governments to do that. Yes. Well said. Well said. So way to go, Greenpeace. All right. Next, our zeros. This is one of the most difficult stories of the year so far. Um, These stories are always very difficult about the live export of animals on ships. Um, It seems like anytime we hear about these stories, they're always the most horrific, don't you think? Like there's really nothing worse than this. So this I'm sure many of you have heard. Uh, There's a ship that's been at sea since December 18th with nearly 900 cows on board and they have nowhere to go. Um, So they left Spain and they're headed for Turkey and they, the, the Turkish authorities wouldn't allow them in. There's suspicions about their health, unfounded apparently suspicions about um, disease risk. Uh, and now no one will take them. And so they're just sort of floating there and no one will will have them and no one will take them. And now uh, veterinarians are saying that all of these cows need to be killed, any of those that are still surviving on board. So our zeros this week is pretty much everybody who's passed the buck, anybody who has had any authority to help these cows who has not helped them, which is basically everybody that's come in contact with them, every authority, the export company that um, owns the ship, everybody's passing the buck onto someone else. Uh, and it's just really horrific how failed these these cows have been by by humans. This is just so completely unacceptable. And somebody should definitely be investigating whether there's a basis to lay charges in this case. Um, But I mean, this just really brings into stark relief how bad this live animal export industry is for animals. Like, it's just so completely unacceptable that these cows have been floating on like a, you know, a death pit for the past two months. And people are just kind of saying, well, you know, it's not our fault. You know, the buyer refused to take them. Oh, we're just the exporter. Oh, you know, we're just the authorities looking at it. Like, no, it's actually all of your faults. And you should be doing something to make this situation change instead of just passing the buck on to someone else. Yeah. Disgusting. And I think that this really is just another story um, to add to the portfolio of stories for reasoning why live export of animals on these ships should just be banned, outlawed, outlawed completely, because it doesn't ever seem to go well, does it? No, you just cannot do that in a way that doesn't cause unimaginable suffering. Yep, that's right. So this week, Zeros is everybody who has failed these poor animals. All right. Well, that's our episode, folks. Thanks for joining us. And we'll be back again in another couple of weeks. Thanks, everyone. 
We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Nickerson. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRule podcasts, visit iRulePod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!